Well, let's get right into this here. If you're a Christian, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. And if you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus, that means you're a follower of him. You're a learner. A disciple is a follower and a a learner, one who learns the lifestyle and the ways of the master, one who learns to think like him and to act like him. And the first disciples, they literally followed Jesus around, and they followed him around Galilee and Israel, and they listened to his teaching, they saw his acts of compassion, they witnessed his deeds and his character, and they were to take all that they learned and to become like Jesus in every way. They were to follow him and follow his ways. They were to become like him. And the same is true for us. Our goal in this life and, and even in the next life, our goal is to become like Jesus. Our goal is to glorify God in this world by becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, what that means, or sorry, again, that's what it means to be a disciple or to be a Christian. We are followers of Christ. And when we think about following Jesus and, and learning from him, what, what we typically think about is following his character, his, his morals, his attributes, his godliness. We think along the lines of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace, to be like him in his patience and kindness and, and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And all of that is, is right and good. Following Jesus does mean becoming like him in those ways. But following Jesus and being a disciple is even more than just that. We're to take on Jesus' lifestyle. We're to take on his purpose. We're to take on his mission in the world. And so we're to become like Jesus in his service. Jesus said in Matthew 20, 26 to 28, he says, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we are to serve like Jesus served. Not even necessarily to be great, but simply just to be like the Lord Jesus. He gave his life as a ransom for many, and we're to follow his example and give our lives up in service to others. Now our lives can never be a ransom payment to set people free from the bondage of sin, but we're to give up our lives to serve the Lord and to love others to glorify God. And that means taking on not only Jesus's character, but also his mission. We're to die to ourselves and to live for the Lord. We're to live to glorify God. Discipleship involves then, it involves mission. We are are disciples. That means we are missionaries. Now maybe we're not missionaries in the the career sense. Not every one of us is going to be like a career missionary to go and reach the lost in some other country. But all of us are to participate in Jesus' mission, which means reaching lost people and building up the church. And so to be a disciple of Christ requires that we join Christ in his work of making disciples. To be a follower of Christ means helping other people to follow Christ. If we're a disciple, if we're a Christian at all, that means we are, we are dis- to be disciple-making 
disciples. And I think the first followers, I I know the first followers of Jesus knew that better than we do. Remember when Jesus called Peter and Andrew, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And shortly after that, Jesus chose 12 disciples and he sent them out to preach and to heal just as he had done. And this morning, we're going to look at, at what he told them when he sent them out to be missionaries for him. And what he told them very much applies to us. Now, there's going to be some differences between their calling and ours, but it very much applies to us. And so I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 10, and I want to start here then by reading our text for this morning. We're going to focus on verses 5 to 15, but let's start reading Matthew 10, starting at verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, And enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. No bag for your journey, or two tunics, or sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words... Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, what we see in this text is Jesus' instructions to the twelve. It's really his commandments to them as he sent them out. He, He sent them out after giving them directions for ministry. And these instructions are specific to the twelve, and they're specific to that time. But it would seem, especially as we get into verse 16 and following, that Jesus' instructions were also intended to go beyond the initial ministry to Galilee. In, In other words, What Jesus said in Matthew 10 was intended for the mission in Galilee and also then for the ongoing mission after Galilee for the rest of those disciples' lives. For example, Matthew 5 or verse 5 says, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. But if you look at verse 18, it says there, And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, 
to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Now, the disciples were not going to be dragged before governors and kings or, or bear witness to the Gentiles yet, not, not in their first mission, but that would happen later in their lives. And what this means then is that Jesus' instructions are, are going to apply to the disciples in their first mission that they're about to go on, and his instructions are also going to apply to their future ministries later on in their life. And when Matthew presents it here, he, he, he does so not just to tell us what Jesus told these disciples, but also to instruct us in our future ministry. Now, the difficulty in, in this is that neither Jesus nor Matthew says what's for the disciples then and what's for us now. And so we have to kind of figure that out with wisdom and, and from other scriptures. For example, we know from other scriptures that our mission isn't just to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We're to make disciples of all nations, Matthew twenty eight nineteen. Another example would be this. So, you know, we could ask ourselves, are we allowed to acquire gold and silver for a missions trip or to bring a bag on our journey? Or is Jesus forbidding that only on that initial trip? Now, we'll kind of answer those questions as we work through this chapter. But, but some things were specific for them, but most of what is here was intended for them then at that time, and then for them later, and so it applies to us in our lives now and, and really going on forever. And so what we'll see in our text today is five aspects of gospel ministry then and now. Five aspects of gospel ministry, what applies to them then, and then what applies to us now. And as we look at this, I want to focus on, on both the then and the now. We want to see what Jesus commanded his disciples then, but we shouldn't miss what Matthew, that Matthew wrote this to show us what we should be about now. And so I've tried to frame the outline so that we can be challenged by what Jesus said to them. Again, five aspects of gospel ministry then and now. And the first one is, I just called it the people that we reach. And we're going to see this in verses 5 and 6. The people we reach. In verses 5 and 6, we see the people Jesus' disciples were to go to and who, or, or rather where they were not to go. Look at verse 5. It says, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them or commanding them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. At this time, they were, to, they were not to go among the Gentiles or the Samaritans. And it's literally, literally there, do not go into the way of the Gentiles. Now remember, they were in Galilee, and, and as they were, they were to stay there, they were to stay there, and, and south of Galilee is Samaria, and to the east was Decapolis, and then to the west, of course, is the ocean, and so there's, there's, really, um, there's really nowhere for them to go here. But it, when Jesus says, don't go in the way of the Gentiles, don't go into the Samaritans, that really just leaves them Galilee. To get to Judah and the rest of Israel would require them to go either through the, the area of the Samaritans or through Decapolis and kind of around and back down into Judah. And so their mission is strictly for 
the Galilean area strictly for Israel. And when you think about it, they were not at all prepared to reach Gentiles or Samaritans yet. They weren't at all prepared for cross-cultural ministry. And in fact, it's, it's really amazing that Jesus has them going out to minister in his name at all and, and on his behalf because they are just brand new disciples. They're very early in the discipleship process. But he's already sending them out to preach. And what that tells us is that Jesus doesn't necessarily need perfectly equipped disciples. He just needs willing people who are eager to serve him. Now, we shouldn't use that as an excuse, you know, not to be prepared. The, the better equipped we are, the, the better and more effective and more fruitful we will be. But sometimes we excuse ourselves from, from ministry by saying something like, well, I'm not prepared or I don't know how to say it very good. Maybe we don't proclaim the gospel to people because we feel like, like we can't say it as well as we should. And by all means, we should learn and, and we should learn how to explain it better. But, but surely we can say something, right? We can, we can do something. We can tell people that they need salvation through Jesus and that their sins can be forgiven through Him. We can tell people that it's only through Jesus that someone can have a relationship with God. And if they want to know more, we can direct them to somebody who can explain the gospel to them further. And that's really all that the disciples were to do at this point. We, they, you know, they're, they're gonna, we're gonna see what they preach in verse seven, but they just passed on what little they knew and they spread the word about Jesus Christ. And presumably after their, their ministry, Jesus would come and, and, and he would come to those villages and towns that they went to and, and people would have an opportunity to talk to him and to hear from Jesus directly if they had more questions. And so Jesus instructed them to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now that's not a specific group within Israel. Jesus sees the whole nation as lost sheep. Remember what we saw just a few weeks ago in chapter 9 and verse 36. It says this there. It says, when he saw the crowds, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Israel was like sheep without a shepherd. Isaiah 53, 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And so the disciples were sent to reach the lost sheep in the area of Galilee. And they were to have compassion on those sheep, just like Jesus had compassion on the crowds. Later on in their ministry, after Jesus rose from the dead, they were going to be sent to the lost sheep of the entire world. Acts 1.8 says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Our mission today is the same as what we see in Acts 1.8. Our mission is to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Our mission is to bring the gospel to all the nations. And that mission starts here, for us anyways, it starts here in Lacrete. But we should also go beyond Lacrete. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be satisfied. Even if every Lacretan got saved, there's more people in the world who need to hear about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And you ought to bow the knee to Him. And so they are our mission. The world is our mission. And we as Grace Bible Fellowship, we work together, you and me, and all of us together work to serve together to reach our community and to reach beyond. Now there's a lot that we could say about this, but what I really want to do here is just remind us that that we, Grace Bible Fellowship, each one of us individually, we are sent here. Our mission begins here, and it begins with, with our children. It begins with those people we know. It extends to our, our friends and our family. We need to reach them with the gospel. It extends to our co-workers and our employers and employees. Our mission extends kind of beyond those even then, to the, beyond those we know to those we don't know. We must reach them too. And eventually, it must extend even beyond our own neighborhood and out to the whole world. And so we've been sent here by the Lord of the harvest to reach the lost sheep around us. And we need to see ourselves as laborers sent out into the harvest. And and we need to see ourselves as sent even if we were born here and we always lived here. If you're a disciple of Christ... You have been sent here as a missionary to reach the people around you. And so these are the people that we are to reach. We've been saved to reach those people. And that's number one. Now, secondly, the the message that we preach. And we see that in verse 7. Second aspect of gospel ministry, then and now, the message that we preach. The disciples were to preach the same message that Jesus had been preaching, again, look at verse 7, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now their message was that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, and that's the same message that both Jesus and John the Baptist preached. Again, if you just flip back to Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And again, Matthew 4 and verse 17 says, And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that message, I, I think, explains why the disciples were only to go to Israel at this time. Their message was for Israel. Jesus was the king, and he would bring in the kingdom if the nation, if Israel, would repent. Now Matthew, in, in, in telling us what he does in chapter 10 here, he leaves off the call to repent, but it's definitely implied. If the people didn't repent, there would, there would literally be hell to pay. Look at verse 14 of our text there, Matthew 10, 14. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words... Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that town or, or that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And so the, the disciples of Jesus went and they preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's just a summary statement of what they preached. Now we know now, and and God always knew that the people of Israel would not repent at that time. But it was a genuine offer to that generation. The kingdom was near, it was on the brink, it was at hand because Jesus the King was right there. 
Now, some people understand this offer of the kingdom here as a, an offer of a spiritual kingdom. As though Jesus and his disciples were saying, repent and, and enter the realm where I, I, I will reign in your hearts. That's what I call the, the spiritual kingdom view. But the problem with the spiritual kingdom view is, first of all, that the Old Testament doesn't talk about a spiritual kingdom in that way. In the Old Testament, when it talks about the kingdom, it, it's the Davidic kingdom with the son of David, the Messiah, ruling from Jerusalem over a physical earth. And the Messiah would bring in that kingdom as well as spiritual salvation to the nation. And when Jesus the Messiah comes saying the kingdom is at hand and, and Matthew connects it to all the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, as we kind of seen earlier in our study, we need to keep, uh, we need to keep in mind or we, we need to keep the Old Testament understanding of the kingdom in mind. Unless there was something in the, the text or in the, in the, in the gospel to tell us that Matthew's talking about a different kingdom. But Matthew never explains the kingdom except by connecting it to the Old Testament. Now the second problem with the spiritual kingdom view is that if Jesus is offering a spiritual kingdom, it's difficult to see what's new about it. There was always a saved remnant within Israel who belonged to the the sphere of salvation, if we want to say it that way. Matthew and all the gospel writers present John the Baptist and Jesus as though they're preaching something new. They're, they're bringing in something new. They're offering the kingdom of heaven. But if all they meant by kingdom was kingdom of salvation, then they didn't actually have anything new at hand because salvation was always at hand in Israel. Besides, Scripture never speaks of salvation as a kingdom, at least not until after the Lord Jesus. Now, after Jesus died and, and rose again, or, or maybe I should say after, um, after it was clear that Israel would not repent and the kingdom would not come immediately, individual people could become citizens of the kingdom. And a saved person, a believer, is a citizen of the kingdom waiting for Jesus to return to establish his kingdom. And so sometimes we see language later in the New Testament that seems to talk about the kingdom in terms of saved people. But it's always possible to understand that language to mean citizens of the yet future physical kingdom. Now, I've said that all before, but I, I thought maybe it'd be helpful just to kind of go through that one more time. The, the disciples' message again was a message of repentance with a promise of the kingdom. And they were to go and proclaim as they go. And that word proclaim there is the word keruso, and it means to, to herald to preach, to proclaim publicly. And so that's what they were to do. They were to herald this message to the people in all those towns and villages. Now our message is slightly broader than theirs. We proclaim and preach and herald the message of Jesus Christ. We're to preach Christ crucified. Like it says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And again in 1 Corinthians 2 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so our message, the message that, that we as Grace Bible Fellowship are to preach, is the message of Jesus Christ and the message of how He came to live and die for our salvation. 
Our message is that your sins can be forgiven and you can be made right with the holy God who created you through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we need to herald this message to proclaim this message to the world that your sins can be forgiven through Christ, that you can be made right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that we need to know this message. We need to speak this message and we need to live it out in our day-to-day lives. We have one message that transforms every aspect of our lives. And it's a simple message, really. Christ crucified. We could summarize it in two words. Christ crucified or repent and believe. We can summarize it in one or two words. It's a simple message and yet it's a profound message. It's a message as lofty as God himself. It's as deep as the triune God. And it extends from hell and the depths of our sin all the way to the joys and heights of heaven. And so it's a simple message and yet it's profound. We call it the gospel, the good news. The good news is what we preach. That is our message to the world. And so that's what we preach. Now the third aspect of gospel ministry, both then and now, is the evidence we provide. The evidence we provide, and this is in verse 8. And this here is where things are, again, slightly different for us versus them. For, for them then versus us now. Again, the evidence we provide, look at verse 8. It says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. The disciples were to reproduce the miraculous deeds that Jesus had done. And we've already seen how these miracles were signs of the nearness of the kingdom. In the kingdom, there will be no sickness. There will be no death. There will be no leprosy. There will be no demons. Or at least none of those things will exist in the kingdom for the resurrected saints that are there. And of course, none of those things will be in the eternal state. And so these signs confirmed that Jesus had the ability to bring in the kingdom conditions. These signs confirmed that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was indeed the king of Israel. And those signs confirmed that the word of God, the New Testament that was going to be written through these men, these apostles, is indeed the word of God and not merely the word of men. And so those signs accomplish their purpose and they're no longer necessary Now that we have God's Word, now that we have the Bible in the Old and New Testament, those miracles confirmed the Word while it was being written. They they confirmed the the living Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, while He was on earth. But they, they no longer need to confirm anything now that Jesus has ascended to the Father and now that we have the Word of God. Now if you think about it, miracles have never brought people to faith. And you can see that from Moses and the Exodus. Miracles have never brought people to faith. All the miracles that, that God worked through Moses, none of them produced faith. And it was the same with the Lord Jesus. They, they couldn't deny his miracles, but they didn't believe in him. Miracles don't produce faith. God working by the power of the Holy Spirit through his word produces faith. And so we don't do miracles, we don't provide any evidence except that we point people to the Word of God 
And that's really all the evidence we need. That's all that we need. God can work faith and save people through His Word. The Spirit working through the Word will produce faith and produce salvation. Now look back then with me. Look at verse 1 again of chapter 10. He called His disciples and He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And so what we see here is Jesus gave the twelve authority. And he gave them authority, his authority, over unclean spirits and over every disease and every affliction. And the same authority that that Jesus had then, he gave to his disciples. And, And if you think about it, that's truly remarkable. Nobody else in biblical history ever gave their authority to another person. Elijah's spirit and power, remember that? That was passed on to Elisha, but that was after Elijah had died and left the earth, or not died, but was ascended to heaven. And so once again, we see here the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He passed his authority on to his 12 apostles. But they didn't pass that authority on to others. It was a a one-time passing of his authority to those 12 and so we don't have the authority that they had. We, we can't, you know, maybe, maybe the Lord would work through us to cast out a demon or something, but we don't have authority over every sickness or disease or we're not sent to do those things that these men were sent to on this particular mission to Galilee. Again, our mission, our task is to just preach the word, the, the word that was confirmed through their, the signs that those men did. And so our job is to preach the word, preach the good news. Theirs was to preach and perform miracles. And they were to do it free of charge. Again, in verse 8, you received without paying, give without pay. And that leads to the next point, because the disciples were not to do this for profit. And so fourthly then, I, I called this the support that we require. And that's in verses 9 to 13. The support we require. And again, this is another place where there's a difference between then and now. The instructions here are very specific to this particular mission that the the disciples were going on. And they're also fairly specific to the, the culture and the setting in Galilee. The disciples, they are to go to the towns and villages of Galilee and they're to stay as guests with the people of those towns. And they're to rely on the hospitality of those towns and villages. Look at verse 9 again. Jesus says, Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Now the word in verse 9 translated acquire means to acquire or to purchase or to to gain possession of something. And the, the idea is, is that the disciples were not to store up for the journey. They're not to gain possessions of, of gold and silver and copper to provide for their journey. 
They wouldn't need a, a, a bag full of provisions or a, a bag to store profits in from the trip. They didn't need two tunics, and, and tunics were the kind of your undergarments that you wore against the skin, and apparently you could, you could or, or maybe you would wear two tunics if you were going to sleep outdoors, but that would be unnecessary on this trip, and so they weren't to have two tunics. Nor were they to acquire a staff or sandals. And the reason for those final two is presumably because they already had a staff and sandals, and they wouldn't need an additional staff and sandals. The ones that they had would be enough. In fact, the, the parallel passage in Mark, in Mark 6, 8, it uses the word take. And Jesus says there, take nothing for your journey except a staff. Verse 9 says, to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And so they would take a staff and sandals, but they weren't to acquire any additional staff and sandals for the trip. It's a short-term trip. They don't need additional gear. And the reason they wouldn't need these things was because they're going to rely again on the hospitality of the people of Israel. Now, hospitality was a major aspect of life in the ancient Near East and, and in Israel in particular. People wouldn't generally stay at an inn. That was, that, those were kind of seedy and, and sinful places. And, and most often, most villages wouldn't have an inn. And so people would, would, would stay with other people, even often strangers. And travelers would show up sometimes after the sun was down or even at, at least when the sun was low because it was nice to travel kind of after the heat of the day. And they would kind of show up in the town square or at the gate of the town and, and the people of town would host the village, the, the, the visitors that, that were in their town for that evening. And for a town not to show hospitality was really a, a horrible thought and the whole community would be ashamed if they didn't, if they didn't provide good hospitality for the people that had visited. And so it was the whole town's responsibility, the whole village would make sure that any visitor was shown hospitality, had a place to sleep, and, and, and had enough food for the, for the morning and, or for the evening and the morning. And so everyone in town made sure that the visitors were well taken care of and they had plenty to eat. And that was just their culture. That was just kind of normal. They just grew up doing that. And a village would be especially honored to have a traveling rabbi like Jesus or even some of his disciples to come and visit and teach in the town. And so when the disciples arrived, they were to find a a worthy place. They were to find out who was worthy and they were to kind of investigate, ask around and find a worthy household and then they would stay there. And what they're looking for, again, is just an appropriate place to stay or a, a household deserving of their presence. They're looking for a, a godly place to stay. When, and when they found one, they were to greet the house, which means that they were to greet the people in the house. Luke 10.5 gives us the exact words. Whenever you enter, first say, peace to this house. The disciples, they're, they're representatives of the prince of peace. And they had the message of peace with God through, their, their, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to receive their message was to receive that peace. And so they would come and say, peace to this house. And then again, verse 13, if the house is worthy, 
Let your peace come upon it. And the idea there is, is let the peace that you have come upon the people in that house. But the rest of verse 13 says, but if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And the, the idea there seems to be that if, if the house is not worthy or if the house is not receptive, your greeting of peace is withdrawn and, and the peace that you have, the peace that you're offering, the gospel message of peace stays with you and you and your message leave that house and leave that village and so they no longer have the opportunity of peace. <clears throat> and so go back to verse 11 then. It says, In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. The disciples were to, to stay at one place until they left town. They, were, they weren't to look around for better accommodations. They weren't to go from house to house. And that command is, is, I think, intended to keep them humble because if they switched houses, they might get kind of special treatment. You know, if you're at, if you're at a visitor's house, the, the first day, get the good food. Second day, maybe the, 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 the mediocre food. But third or fourth day, you're just getting what, whatever everyone else is eating. And so that's kind of the, the way it seems to work there. The first day or two, they, they were just to get, get everyday treatment, just kind of whatever that family ate, whatever the provisions were, that's what they were to enjoy. They weren't, they weren't there to, to feast from house to house, but they were there to share the message and power of the Lord Jesus. Now, when we th- kind of turn from then to now, things are slightly different. We're not Israelites. We're not sent to Israel. We're not to expect hospitality from strangers. We're allowed to prepare for missionary journeys and, and really anywhere that we go is likely going to be a much longer stay than what Jesus was talking about in verses 9 to 13. Now the principle though that we need to draw from this is at the end of verse 10. Look at Matthew 10, 10 again. For the laborer deserves his food. Literally, the worthy is the worker or the, the worker is worthy of his food. And Paul picks up on this statement from the Lord in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And, and why don't we do, just turn there. Go to 1 Timothy 5 for a minute. <clears throat> 1 Timothy five seventeen. It says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And that's a quote, that's a quote from the parallel passage in Luke. The laborer deserves his wages. And Paul mentions this again in 1 Corinthians 9. So let's go, let's go ahead and go to 1 Corinthians 9. Really, the whole context here, even starting in verse 4. But just look at verse 13, 1 Corinthians 9, 13. Paul says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple or in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. 
or from the gospel. Now, third John also kind of speaks to the same thing. So let's go to third John. Just before the book of Revelation and Jude. Third John verse five to eight says this. Now I want to remind you. Oh, I'm in the wrong book. Third John five. Um, Third John five. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Gaius, uh, the, the, the letter to whom first or third John is written, he hosted and supported missionary gospel preachers. And he, he took them in and he provided for their needs and then he sent them out to proclaim the gospel. And what all of this means for us is that we ought to be, just like, like Gaius was, we ought to be faithful or fellow workers for the truth by financially supporting gospel ministers. And we should take care of their living so that they can take care of ministry. We should take care of them, in, 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 as it says there, in a manner worthy of God, or, or we could, should consider them worthy of double honor like we saw in 1 Timothy 5, which implies kind of taking good care of them financially so that they can just worry not about their living, but about their gospel ministry. Now, you guys, as far as Grace Bible Fellowship, you guys do a, a great job of that for me, but, but there's, there's always room to grow in that. And, and I don't mean for me and my salary, I just mean for, for us as a church, there's always more that we can do and it always it takes money, right? It, if, if we're going to do something, it's going to take money. And so like one day as we think about the ministry of Grace Bible Fellowship, I would love it if we had missionaries all over the world, good, solid, biblical missionaries that were preaching the gospel and planting churches. I would love it if we had a, a building one day where we can kind of have our own place to worship. Someone was talking about some great singing in a, in a church they were at recently. And it'd be nice to have a, a facility where we can f- facilitate great unechoey singing. Um, that would be awesome. And, and, and same thing with even like more staff one day or planting churches or all of those things take resources. And if we're going to work to accomplish our mission, we, we need support and we need to support this local church. And so this supporting this local church is really part of part of being faithful as in, in gospel ministry um, so that we can have the most impact as a local church. And we do that with our lives and with our finances. So that was the support we require. Now, the final aspect of gospel ministry, at least in this text, is the urgency that we need. I called it the urgency that we need. And we're back in Matthew 10. Look at verse 14 and 15. We're in a serious business as disciples of Christ. And and our task is really deadly important. Look at verse 14 again. It says, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. 
Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now to shake off the dust was a a sign, and it was a sign of of disassociation, a sign of judgment. It says, you know, I I have nothing to do with you, not even the the least speck of dust from you is, is welcome on me. And the Israelites would shake off the, the dust of Gentile or Samaritan territory if they had to travel through that. When they returned to Israel, they would, they would kind of ceremonially shake off the dust of those, those Gentile, heathen, pagan lands when they got back to Israel. And so it says to, when we shake off the dust like that, it says, I regard you as Gentiles. I regard you as pagans. I regard you as unbelievers. Because you see, not to receive one of Jesus' disciples or not to listen to them was not to receive or listen to Jesus' words. And not to listen to Jesus is not to listen to God. And in fact, I want you to turn here to Deuteronomy 18. Let's go to Deuteronomy 18, 18, and 19. This is a text that that prophesies the coming of Christ, the Messiah. The Lord is speaking, Yahweh is speaking here to Moses, and he says in verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. God's going to put his words in the Messiah, in Jesus' mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Now when God says, I will require it of him, that's to say that God is going to hold him accountable for it. God's going to hold anyone accountable for not listening to the Messiah. Not obeying or not heeding the Messiah is the most serious sin. And so is, and kind of an extension to that, is not heeding those who the Christ sends. And so if, if they or we are presenting the word of Christ, to disobey us is to disobey Christ. And to disobey Christ or to disbelieve Christ is to disbelieve or disobey God. And so if you go back to Matthew 10 again, And look at verse 14. It says, if anyone will not receive you, that is kind of host you, or listen to your words, and then look down at verse 40, because we're going to see this again. Matthew 10 and verse 40, Jesus says there, kind of a, a continuation of the same, the same talk that Jesus is giving, the same sermon, the same message. It says in verse 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And so that's kind of the opposite of that. But for the disciples and for us, this means that we have a serious business. It's not that that we ourselves are serious or that we ourselves are important, but our message is. Because if someone rejects you or someone rejects me, they reject the message that we bring, the message of the gospel. And if they reject our message, they reject the only way to have peace with God. 
And if they reject peace with God, God Himself is going to require it of them. And Jesus adds a note of solemnity in verse 15 when He says, Truly I say to you, look again at verse 15, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now Sodom and Gomorrah are the picture of severe judgment for sin. God rained fire and brimstone from heaven on those towns. Every one of them died for their sins in that terrifying judgment. A judgment that that fit their abominable sin. And those cities are the picture of judgment and the picture of depravity. But Jesus is saying for Israel to reject his disciples and to reject their message, that's a worse sin with a worse judgment. And so whether you were an Israelite in Galilee in 30 AD, rejecting maybe Simon the Zealot and even Judas Iscariot, or whether you're a Canadian in Lacrete in 2022, to reject the message and the messengers of Jesus Christ is a serious sin. Because there's no forgiveness outside of Christ. And all of us, every single person, will stand before God on the day of judgment. An eternal fire and brimstone is not going to be bearable for anybody. And so if you're here today and you haven't come to Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, I would urge you to come to Christ. Because you don't want to imagine a worse punishment than that that the worst sinners ever in the Old Testament face. But that's exactly what Jesus promises here. If you don't come to Christ, it will be a worse punishment for you than the worst sinners of Sodom and Gomorrah. Such it will be for those who reject God's great Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why, brothers and sisters, this note of judgment here is why we must do all that we can do to be about the mission that the Lord Jesus sends us on. We have an urgent message for lost people, and we need to be urgent about it. We need to be serious about it. God has sent us to reach the lost people of the world. And we need to support that mission financially. We need to provide evidence for it by pointing people to the Word of God, which is the power of God for salvation. We need to preach it clearly and boldly and by the power of the Holy Spirit and call sinners and urge them to repent and come to Christ for salvation. We need to reach the lost sheep of the world Because if we do not reach them, they will perish in their sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage, this commission to us. And we ask that you would help us to be about our mission, Father, to to put our focus there and to live for you in a way that glorifies you, that, that we can be useful instruments in your hand to reach lost sinners, Father. We thank you that, that you designed salvation this way, that we don't need to be perfect but that you can work through us in our weakness, that you can reach people with your gospel, Father. And we pray that, that this pulpit and this people would always be faithful to proclaim your message, your truth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.